So one of the most basic, perhaps most human desires is the longing to know and to be known, to completely give yourself to another and have them give themselves to you. So um, the last few weeks, my wife has been on a simplification rampage, throwing out what she deems as junk, some of which are my treasures. I gave away 49 books, friends. Do you know how painful that was? Um, And in the process, uh, she stumbled upon uh, an old cassette tape in the junk pile somewhere. And um, kids, let me explain real quick. This (laughs) used to contain music. I know it's funny putting music on a thing. You put it in what's called a boom box. Anyways, okay. Uh, so, so she found this old cassette tape that I had made for her back in the olden days, two, circa 2001, right? When we were dating, uh, I was in Dallas. She was in Cincinnati, a thousand miles away. And you can hear in my voice how I longed for this girl. I ached for her. Like, I wanted to die if we didn't get married soon. You can just hear it in every word. And it's not just physical attraction, though it was that I was in my early 20s, not going to deny it. But there's this longing just to be with her, to be near her, to share my life with her, to have someone to do life with, someone that I could be fully known by and could fully know me, someone to share the depths with, someone who would choose me. So something about Christmas season in particular is like... um, like when you cut your fingernails too short, have you ever done that? Makes you particularly sensitive. Yeah. Something about the Christmas season is like cutting our fingernails too short when it comes to this desire. Like it stirs up, it reveals this desire, exposes this desire in all of us. And you can hear it enshrined in our Christmas music, right? Elvis, I'll have a blue. I'll have a blue Christmas without you, or like a bing, you know, I'll be home for Christmas if only in my dreams, Mariah Carey. All I want for Christmas is you, my personal favorite. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart. The very next day, you gave it away. This year, I'm going to give it to someone special. Special. So we're in the series called, well, What Do You Want? Like this time of year. Hundreds of millions of Americans will be asked that question, what do you want for Christmas? And it'll, be, it'll ask us to expose our desires, like, what do you want? Search your heart. What, would, what is unfulfilled in your life? What would satisfy you and guys like Elvis and Bing and Mariah and Wham? They want to suggest that if we just found the right relationship, the right person, then we'd be truly satisfied, complete, whole, that you need to find the one. You need to be in love. You need to tingle. And I'm, I, let me say, I'm not completely tossing that away. There's something to this. When I was single, I spent one Christmas by myself eating Chinese takeout. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> so I'm not saying that's totally wrong, but I am saying that if you come to the scriptures, if you come to the ancient Near Eastern guides of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will find a completely different answer to this question. You will find that they say what you're really looking for is not a romantic relationship. What you're really looking for is something deeper. So when we come to John, the last few weeks we've talked to Mark and we talked to Luke. This week is John. When we come to John and say, I need help. 
Like this time of year, it exposes something in me, some deep aching, this longing for something. I'm not sure what, like, what do I do with this, John? John says, I want to tell you a story. And it's John chapter 4, Gospel of John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. If you have your text, feel free to turn there. This is a great text. You should all know it and love it. Find it on your phone or, or scriptures as you have. Um, Gospel of John chapter 4, starting in verse 1. This will be very familiar to some of you. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. I include the Baptist there. Talking about John the Baptist. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. So Jesus is down in this region called Galilee in the south. Here's a map for us to wrap our minds around ancient Palestine at the time. And in the south, um, this is Roman-occupied Palestine land we know of is Israel. In the south is this region called Judea, and Jesus has been down there doing ministry, and that's where Jerusalem is, and that's where a lot of people who want to kill him are. So things start getting too hot, so he decides he's going to go head north to the other Jewish region here called Galilee. That's where you find, like, rednecks and fishermen and, and militias, right? People who say things like, get her done, and grab big old pickups, this is Jesus' hometown. He's like, let's go home, guys. It's getting too hot here in the south. But, but we read in the next line, he had to go through Samaria. Boom, boom, boom. So this is, this is the, uh, the thing. Between Judea, this Jewish area in the south, and Galilee in the north, Jewish area, there is smash between them, to, the two of those, this area called Samaria. Like a big pile of dog poo in the middle of your sidewalk. Like, you got to watch where you step. You see, the thing about Samaria is that it's full of Samaritans. And Jews hated Samaritans. Um, if you dig into the history just a little bit, um, imagine this. Imagine your mom cheats on your father, goes out, cheats on him. She gets pregnant, has a child. That child grows up and then says, I'm dad's favorite and heir to the, all the family fortune. Like, how would that make you feel, right? That's how Jews viewed Samaritans, that Samaritans claimed to be the rightful sons of Abraham, but they were, according to Jews, they were illegitimate half-breeds that hundreds of years prior to this moment, to, to when Jesus was there, um, Assyrians had come in, and these Israelites had interbred, intermarried with the Assyrians and other people groups to form the Samaritans. And from a good Jewish standpoint, that was disgusting, nasty, blasphemous even, sinful, so this mixture, you're neither a Jew nor an Assyrian. You're neither pagan nor religious. You're, you've combined it. You've ruined both. So in the mind of a good Jew, they were worse than a run-of-the-mill pagan. They take uh, the holy things of God. They take um, the temple. They make their own temple in Gerizim. They take the scriptures, God's holy Torah, and they make their own scriptures, the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is different. They edit it. They take the holy name of God, I am that I am. And they recite that over pagan-style sacrifices. So to the Jews, this is utterly repulsive. And the Jews had hated Samaritans. Samaritans had hated Jews for hundreds of years. And, and there were these skirmishes, and there was this constant back and forth. Um, as recently, uh, in this context, as recent as 9 AD, some Samaritans had snuck into the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. 
and scattered bones all over the temple grounds during Passover. So they went in to their most holy site during one of the holy festivals and desecrated it. It's just hateful. Jews and Samaritans did this back and forth thing all the time. There's a famous um, prayer of the Pharisees. It went something like this. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for the food you give me. Thank you for your goodness to me. And may no Samaritan be raised in the resurrection. Amen. I mean, it was deep, deep hatred. So we see this, and then we see in verse 5. So he, Jesus, came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. All right, get that, get that. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired. As he was from the journey, he sat down by the well. It was about noon. So get this. This is a classic setup John gives us here. Picture it. Jesus has been walking on this famous path. It's called the, the, the Way of the Patriarchs. It's well known at that time. This Way of the Patriarchs going from Judea to Galilee and back and forth. And he stops down. It's the heat of day. It's about noon, he says. And this is in the middle, um, Mediterranean climate. This is where the sun gets to such a point that it's almost unbearable. Everyone retreats to the shade. Everyone looks for something to eat and take a nap. It's like, it's like the middle, uh, middle Eastern version of siesta here. You get it? So Jesus is hot, sweaty, exhausted, and he stops by. He sees a well. He stops off there. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Um, There's a famous line in the Mishnah, which is this uh, written record of the ancient oral tradition of the Jews. And it reads like this. One who eats Samaritan bread is like one who eats pork. So that's saying all your food is nasty. So, so the disciples, they're like, they're going off to find a kosher deli somewhere in Samaria. <laughs> like somewhere in this God-forsaken land, there has to be something to eat. And they go off, and Jesus is all alone. And, and he's quite literally been following the way of the patriarchs. He sucks at Jacob's well. Jacob was an ancient patriarch. And here's the question that you should be asking right now if you're reading this text. He's walking the way of the patriarchs. He stops at a patriarch's well, Jacob's well. Um, What do patriarchs do at wells? Find a wife. Yes, pick up women. That is exactly what they do at wells. Like if you read through the text, um, the local well was apparently the ancient Near Eastern equivalent of like Tinder. It's it's like our 20-somethings group. Like single guys show up, but they leave with a wife. If you just stay there long enough. So Genesis 24, where does Isaac find Rebekah? The well. Genesis 29, where does Jacob meet Rachel? A well. Exodus 2, where does Moses meet Zipporah? A well. So he's at this well. This woman shows up, hey, will you give me a drink of water? So a few years ago, um, Jenny and I went went grocery shopping, just the two of us. And we're in the produce aisle, and I step over to, like, look at asparagus or something, you know. And just as I step away, this smoldering Latino man comes up to my wife in a way that is um, the sexiest possible way you could say anything in the produce section, (laughs) picks up an avocado and says, hey, you know these avocados are ripe? 
like my wife is blushing in the way that only a, like a smoldering Latino man can make her blush. And I'm standing there like, hey, Rico Suave, I'm right here. Drop the avocado. Verse 7 feels a lot like that. Hey, you want to give me a drink of water? The Samaritan woman said to him, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Like if you knew who I really am, if you knew me, you'd have nothing to do with me. So even, even before we dive into this woman's backstory, which we will, the whole scene here seems wildly inappropriate. First, you're at a well, which is like the meat market of the ancient Near East. Second, it's a Samaritan woman. It's a woman, and Jewish men don't talk to women in public. In fact, there's lines about Jewish men weren't supposed to talk to any women in public, even their wives. I have no idea how that worked, but that's the cultural norm of the day. And third, it's a Samaritan woman. Again, the Mishnah, that ancient text captures this in that sentiment of the day when it says, the daughters of the Samaritans are regarded as unclean from their cradle. She's nasty. She's dirty. And the worst of all is this, that we don't necessarily pick up unless you read the whole context here, according to New Testament scholar Gerald Brochere. The only reason a Jewish man might speak with a non-Jewish woman in public was to solicit her for prostitution. This whole thing seems wildly inappropriate. And from the rest of the story, we have reason to believe that this woman might be mistaken for a prostitute. Like, I don't want to read too much into this, but it's at least worth noting that this woman, when did she come to the well? At noon, at midday, to this day. If you visit villages or places all over the world, but especially villages in Africa where women go to the well to get their water, what time of day do they go to get their water? Morning and the cool of the day. In fact, it's a big social event. That's when they all go. That's what they do. That's what people, women have done down through the ages. In fact, I have personal experience with this. A few years ago, I was in Malawi, southern Africa, and I got up one morning to go out for a jog, which I guess is not normal there. But anyways, I did. So I'm jogging, and I run by this well, and there's all these women out there for their morning gathering their water um, at the well. And they start catcalling me and saying all these sexually suggestive things to me. And I'm like, wow, this is like the Bible. (laughs) (laughs) So this woman, though, when does she go? She goes in the heat of the day when no other woman would show up. Is she trying to avoid the other women of the town? Well, from the rest of the story, it seems to suggest that this might be the case. So here's the picture. Jesus is hanging out by the well, the well. He drops what feels like a pickup line to this woman who looks like a prostitute. It's incredibly awkward. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She's like, if you knew who I really am, you'd have nothing to do with me. And he's like, if you knew who I really am, you'd be asking questions of me. 
And so with that, Jesus takes this sexually charged conversation and he like turns it on its head. He's going to point her and us to something deeper, to this thing called living water. Now, living water here is what you call um, a double entendre. It's, it's like a, a word or phrase or that could be used, could have two meanings at the same time. And oftentimes this is used um, to great confusion or humor. There's some um, fairly well-known like uh, headlines, real examples. Uh, let me give you a few. Um, new obesity study looks for larger test group. Yeah. Children make nutritious snacks. Yum. Police crack found a man's buttocks. What exactly did you expect to find? Yeah, so living water, living water is like that. (laughs) Sorry. But it is. It has multiple meanings at the same time. And, and, and all of them seem to be at play in this conversation. So one, living water could literally be um, fresh water, spring water, water that's moving, the water that refreshes. But in that world where, where you're desert type, uh, dry season, wet season, um, where water itself is scarce, in that world, living water is a metaphor, a common metaphor for life itself. Living water is a metaphor for, for that thing for which you thirst or long the most. And third, living water throughout the scriptures, we find that living water is also a metaphor or a picture for your most basic sexual desire. So Proverbs chapter 5, Solomon famously tells us on this, Drink water from your own cistern, living water from your own well. Now men, he's not telling you where to fill up your could canteen there. He's saying, take your desires to your wife. You go to your wife to fulfill your desires. And if you think I'm making too much of this, read the next couple verses. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Do I get an amen? Yeah. Living water. Jeremiah 2 adds this uh, whole other layer of meaning. So God describes his relationship with his people as a love relationship, as a bride and a groom. But here's the thing. His people, they've been unfaithful. They've gone after other gods. They've, they've looked for other things to satisfy. With that. They should only go to God to satisfy. And he says it this way. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They're going to something that cannot satisfy. That's the great sin. That's the great pain of this. So in this uh, subtly brilliant way, Jesus seems to be pulling out all three of these meanings at once. And Jesus exposes this woman's thirst for water and for sexual pleasure to show her a deeper thirst that only he can quench. Now, having said this, all of this seems to slip right past the woman. Verse 11, Sir, the woman said, You've got nothing to draw with. The well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He says, you're looking to the wrong thing to satisfy you. Proverbs 5, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel. It echoes throughout the scriptures. You're going to the wrong thing to satisfy you. Like the opposite of living water is not dead water, it's salt water. And is there, is there a better metaphor for unsatisfied desires than that? Have you ever considered that you can, you can be in the middle of the ocean, floating on top of trillions of gallons of water, and die of thirst? The more you drink, the thirstier you get, the quicker you die. And Jesus says that's the type of stuff we're tempted to go after. Can you think of a better picture of the modern American life? Like you're thirsty, you long for satisfaction and refreshment, buy this car, get this house, do this thing, have this experience, find the one, and then you'll be happy and then you'll be satisfied. So we buy it and we do it and we get it and we do it again and again and again and again. And are we satisfied? No, because it's so much salt water. And what this woman needs, what we need, is living water. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. So Jesus says, okay, you say you want it. So let's get personal. Let's talk about what you really thirst for. If you really want this living water, if you really want it, we have to talk about the salt water you've been drinking again and again and again. Verse 16. So he says, hey, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. In fact, the fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you, are now, you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Ding, ding, ding. So I want you to get this here. Jesus is not just outing her sordid past here. He's revealing the fact that she is thirsting for something that cannot be quenched. By another man, or another man, or another man. So she shows up here thinking, if you really knew who I am, you'd have nothing to do with me. And Jesus like, I do know. I know everything. I know why you show up at the well at noon. I know why you look like a prostitute right now. I know why you've gone from man to man to man to man to man. I know you're looking for someone, for something to fill that void. I know everything about you. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. (laughs) Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you, Jews, claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, here's the question. Does this woman have a sincere theological question? Or is she just trying to change the subject to get it off something so personal? I'll let you be the judge. But either way, this is a good question here, right? You're a prophet. Here's my theological question. What's the right answer? Like Samaritans, we worship God on on Mount Gerizim. And you Jews, you worship him on Mount Moriah. 
You tell us we're wrong, we tell you you're wrong. For hundreds of years, this battle's been raging. Solve that theological problem for me. And Jesus says, woman. Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of... the kind of worshipers the fathers the father seeks god is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth jesus says a time is coming and has now come when people will no longer meet god in a temple but instead god the father will go out seeking people he'll go out to places you can't imagine dark places places where sinners live places that are nasty and filthy, places like Samaria. And he will come out seeking people to worship him among those who do not know him, among sinners and broken and humble and meek, those with lots of baggage in their life, those who've gone from person to person to person, those who have no holds barred in their life. And by his spirit, he's going to take those people, those sinners, those people he loves, And he's going to make them into true worshipers. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Literally, it reads, I am the one speaking to you. He, if you know the gospel of John, he uses the sacred name of God. I am. I am. I am the one you're looking for. I am the God who seeks you. Just then the disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? This is the moment when you walk in and it's totally inappropriate, but you just don't want to say anything. Then leaving her jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Um, Something's lost in translation here in this phrase. uh, Could this be the Messiah? um, Even beginner Greeks know this. If you you begin a sentence, a, a question with mete, um, it, it expects a negative answer. That this woman doesn't immediately come to faith. Like she has this deep experience with Jesus. She's known by Jesus. He exposes everything. He says, I'm the very God of the universe who's come after you. After you. I know everything about you and I've come after you. But she's still, she's carrying so much baggage, so many doubts, so much hurt. She's been hurt by so many men. She still doesn't know if she can believe him. So this question could be more like, this couldn't be the Messiah, could he? Could he? Even then she doubts. And yet she wants to believe. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. So they're thinking about their stomachs. And there's this big conversation about what you really desire in food. And then the whole thing wraps up in verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. 
So this woman comes to this well thinking, if you really knew who I am, you'd have nothing to do with me. And Jesus said, if you really knew who I am, you'd know that I know everything about you and love you anyways. You'd know that I'd leave everything for you. You'd know that I'd die for you. So may I suggest to you that the greatest surprise of this scene is not that Jesus knows everything about this woman. It's knowing that knowing everything, Jesus still came after her. That he is the great I am and he still seeks her out. Her. So this, this um, used, spent, shameful woman, this woman that no one wants, he says, I want her. I'll seek her out. I'll pursue her. And that's the great surprise that Jesus knows and he still pursues her. He knows why she shows up at the well at noon. He knows why she looks the way she looks. He knows why she's seeking after man, after man, after man. And he loves her so much that he comes into Samaria to find her. And this message isn't just about the woman. But John seems to think that this is a message we all need to hear. That it's about us. That the surprising message of Christmas, the good news for all people, is that Jesus knows. He knows everything. He knows what you've done. He knows what's been done to you. He knows the things that haunt you. He knows your shame. He knows why you act the way you act. He knows why you chase after those things you chase after. He knows why you keep going to salt water again and again. He knows. And he loves you more than you can imagine. The scriptures are clear. He loves us so much that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that while we were yet sinners, Romans 5, Christ came and died for us. He gave his life for us. He knew you, and he knew it would cost him, and he still came. So recently I've been introduced to the world of interpersonal neurobiology, this field of study in which neuroscientists study how uh, relationships shape neurobiology, like literally reformat your brain's shape neural pathways, things like that. And I I bumped into this guy, uh, Dr. Kirk Thompson, uh, his book, Anatomy of the Soul, and he describes how being known, specifically being known by God, how that shapes us. And I read this section the other week and immediately thought of the woman of the well. Let Let me just read this. This will... When you keep your relationship with God exclusively fact-based and rational, it's easy to make judgments about others and yourselves. Such judgments reduce your anxiety and increase your sense of safety and protection. So this is what the woman at the well is doing, right? Rather than have a deep personal conversation with Jesus about why she's gone from man to man, she says, let's talk about a theological issue, what's right and wrong. Let's keep this fact-based. However... 
Dr. Thompson says, this way of being also has the curious effect of increasing the isolation you feel both from others and within your own mind. You think that woman was lonely? If you allow yourself to be known by God, you invite a different, frankly, more terrifying experience. You're now in the position of vulnerability. If you permit others to know you, they can make their own assessment of your worth. They can react to you. You give them power to be affected by you and in doing so to affect you. You grant them the option to love you or reject you. In essence, you must, must trust another with yourself if you're ever to be known. However, it is only through this process of being known that you come to know yourself and learn how to know others. There is no other way. To be known is to be pursued, examined, and shaken. To be known is to be loved and have hopes and even demands placed on you. It is to risk not only the furniture in your home being rearranged, but your floor plans being rewritten, your walls being demolished and reconstructed. To be known means that you allow your shame and guilt to be exposed in order to be healed. Jesus knows you. Will you let yourself be known? Can you trust him? He knows everything. He knows what you've done, and yet he loves you perfectly. You can't earn it, you can't deserve it, and yet he comes after you. And right now, for all of us, he invites us to trust him. I'm going to pray for us. It's a simple prayer. Um, If this prayer echoes your heart, I just encourage you to pray with me. Let's close our eyes. Jesus, I want to believe that despite what the world tells me and what others say and what I even tell myself, I want to believe what you say. I want to stop going to salt water. I believe that you know me completely and yet somehow you love me. I believe that you came after me and died for me and rose again. And so I will trust you. I will lean into your love. I will come to you with my deepest desires. Jesus, I don't want to go to salt water anymore. And so I'm going to trust you to meet the need that I can. Amen. I don't know where you're at in your walk with God today, but if this prayer... If it echoes your heart, then you're well on your way. The band's going to play. Let me close with these words from Psalm 139. Let them hang in the air as you sit before God. You've searched me, Lord. You know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. 
such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain.